number of people, to bring a multitude of people to saving faith in your son, and to strengthen your children. These things we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you spend more, for more than just a few minutes uh, on the internet or watching the news, you will realize very, very quickly uh, that we live in a world that is full of broken promises. Living in a world where there is so many things we don't know what is true and what is not. Right, a few years ago, it was, you know, Photoshop, and everybody was Photoshopping stuff. And then we got, we got good enough at recognizing what, okay, what's legitimate, what's not. Like, that head doesn't look quite right, and that background's a little too sharp to recognize what was fake. Well, now they've come out with something known as deep fakes. How many of you have heard of deep fakes? Where you actually, computer programs can create videos of people talking and doing things that look 100% real. Like, they could get a picture of me and put me in the White House and have me giving a speech and saying all these things. It's kind of creepy, really, right? You know, like, is that a real video or is that a, is that a deep fake? You go onto Instagram and everybody's got their filters on there of like, here I am and it's all airbrushed looking great. And then you see the people and you're like, eh, it doesn't look like you. You've uh, gained a little weight. Like, well, what's going on here with this? We live in a video in a time where there, are, where there is deception. We've heard the phrase, of course, fake news or alternative facts or, or my truth or your truth. There was an interaction just a week or so ago where the vice president was at, I think it was Georgetown University, and somebody was giving a viewpoint, and, and she said, it's very important for you to speak your truth. I'm kind of like, what, what, what's that all about? There is no your truth or my truth. There is just the truth, right? Uh, we live in a world where there is so much question as to what is real, what is true. Many people today are, are experiencing what philosophers would call an epistemological crisis, fancy way of saying we don't know what's true or not. We don't know what to believe. A lot of people are just throwing their hands up in frustration, saying, you can't believe anything out there. I'm just going to make up my own reality. And by the way, you have the tools at your disposal to do that. You go on to social media, and you can, this is what I think, and it's just as good as what the next person thinks. Well, I want to declare to you today that there is something that you can trust, and it is the promise of God. You can trust the promise. You can rest in the covenants of God, the promises that he has made to us in Christ. He's a God who will always keep his word. He is a God who will always be consistent with himself and to his nature and will always carry out what he has promised to us that he would. We're going to look to the life of Abraham this morning. And by the way, those of you who are just joining us today, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us here at Cloverleaf Baptist. I know this is not the only church in Mobile that's preaching the Bible this morning, but we're really honored that you chose to be with us. And uh, we've been doing this series through the life of Abraham, looking at this the father of faith, this guy as he walks this life of putting one foot in front of the, uh, the, the next, trusting God and his promises. And uh, we're picking up in Genesis 15 today, seeing God cutting the Abrahamic covenant. So we want to see proof of God's faithfulness. It's going to be the life of Abraham, where he takes God at his word, and God is faithful to him completely. We can trust God's faithfulness. We can rely on God's faithfulness. We can take it to the bank. We can know that it is real, even when everything else around us seems like sinking sand. There is reality. There is truth, and it is grounded in the nature of God. This is his world. This is his creation. It operates according to his rules, according to his plan and his purposes. So very simply, this text really divides into two parts, verses 1 to 6. And then verses 7 to 21, we get really two big promises that God gives to Abraham and then backs them up. The first one, really, if you look at verses 1 to 6, God's talking about the promise of a son, that Abram, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a child, you're going to have an heir. 
And then verses 7 to 21 is dealing with the promise of the land, of the inheritance. The word possess can mean inheritance. So two big promises that God gives to Abram, that he guarantees to Abram, that show to us and illustrate to us the faithfulness of God. Now, it's very interesting if you analyze these two sections. They're almost like side-by-side panels. They follow the same pattern. We start off with a word from God. Okay, in verse 1, the, 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 these, after these things, there came a word uh, from the Lord to Abram. Verse 7 begins with a word from God. So we get the word of God. And then Abram comes back with a question in verse 2. He says, hey, I don't have, a, don't have an heir. What are you going to do about that, God? And verse 8, he asks, whereby do I know that I shall inherit the land? So we get a word from God and then a question from Abram. And then we get an answer from God. God answers Abram in verses 4 and 5, and then he answers Abram again in verse 9 on down. And then we get kind of the, the, the result of that. Verse 6, Abram's response is that he trusts God. And then in the second section, the result of it is that God cuts a covenant with Abram. So this very similar patterns put together, very artfully designed and written by Moses to, to show how these two promises go hand in hand, to show God that is faithful. So let's walk through these, these, these verses together. First off, in verses 1 to 6, we see that Abram trusted God's promise of a son. Right, that, that's what verses 1 to 6 are all about. Abram, you're going to have a son, and Abram trusted that. Abram believed that. So after these things, what are the things in verse 1? Well, we just had chapter 14 right before Genesis 15. Uh, by the way, so much of Bible study is just about context of knowing what happened right before this. And how do these events tie together? Back in Genesis 14, Abram had won this great victory over Keterleomer and over this alliance of eastern kings. We looked at that last week. He's won this great battle. At the end of the chapter, the king of Sodom is like, Abram, I want to give you all this stuff. And Abram's like, no, I'm not going to take this stuff because I'm going to trust God to provide for me. I'm going to trust God to bless me. I don't want you to take any credit for that. So then God shows up. The word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. So Abram's having some kind of a dream that was one of the modes of revelation back at this time in history. But notice the emphasis is not on what Abraham sees, but what he hears. It's not on the spectacle, but on the oracle. It's on the word of God, on the spoken word of God. By the way, we have the word of God. We don't need a vision, a dream, a spectacle. We need, we need the written, spoken word of God. So God's word comes in with something very unusual. Fear not, Abram. You see that in verse 1. Fear not. Abram literally just won this great battle with 318 guys. He took on an army from four different kings, and he won a battle. So why would God have to come along and say, fear not? Abram's riding high. He's like sort of the the hero in the land. And God's coming to him saying, fear not. Some people say, well, maybe Abraham was afraid that these armies would come back and come after him. Other people think that, well, maybe now that he's become popular, there's other enemies who may pop up. I don't think that's at all. Rather, Abram is having a vision of Yahweh. He's having a vision of God. And the first word God always has to say when he reveals himself to sinners is fear not. Fear not. Even though Abram had just fearlessly defeated his enemies in the presence of God, he trembles. Victor Hamilton writes this, It is not nearly as fearful to meet an antagonist on the battlefield as it is to encounter the deity in a vision. Abram may confront Keterleomer and live, but can he confront Yahweh and live? What what an amazing consideration. Here's Abram in the presence of God, and he needs to be reminded of fear not. He can stand before an army boldly, but in the presence of God, God must say, fear not. You see, throughout Scripture, whenever God shows up, it's not a, yay, let's have a party, but it is on your face in fear before the living God. When, when, When Isaiah sees the glory of God, 
He, he, he hears the declaration of the holiness of God, and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. When Peter realized that he was in the presence of Jesus, the Messiah, he, he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Sinners confronted with the holiness of God. The response is always one of awe and even fear. Now, on what basis does God say fear not? Well, here it is. Look in, in, in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. For I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. God's saying, Abram, the reason you don't need to fear is I am for you. Now, why does that matter? You're like, oh, God's for all of us. He's, he's our friend. No, God is actually the, the deadly enemy of sinners. Right? You're like, well, that doesn't sound right. God's my buddy. We've been, we've been sort of given this theology that God's this nice big Santa Claus in the sky. No, God is a God who is holy. He's a God who is just. He's a God who is perfect. And sinners cannot stand in his presence. God hates sin and sinners hate God's righteousness. For, God to, for us to be able to stand in God's presence fearlessly, God has to be propitious towards us. He's got to be gracious towards us. And so God says, I'm your shield, I'm your protector, and I'm your reward. I'm a God who is gracious towards you. I'm a God who loves you. I'm your shield. Now, of course, Abram had made some enemies in the land. God, by saying, I'm your shield, is saying, I'm your protector. I'm the one who will guard you, Abram. I'm the one who has set my love upon you, and nothing will happen to you. I'm going to guard you. I'm going to protect you. Abram had made some powerful enemies. He'd done that little shenanigan where he'd gone down to Egypt and lied to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not exactly an enemy that you want to have, right? He's a pretty powerful dude. He had just beat the daylights out of Keterleomer and these kings from the east. So he's got enemies from the east, enemies from the south. He's living in Canaan with just a tent. God says, no, Abram, I'm going to protect you. You don't need to fear. And then God says, I am thy exceeding great reward. Could alternatively be rendered, and your reward will be very great. Earlier, back in the end of chapter 14, Abram had made the decision not to take the spoils of war. They were rightly his. He had won the battle. To, to the victor go the spoils. But he said, no, I don't want the king of Sodom to take any credit. God turns around and says, Abram, your reward is not the spoils of Sodom. Your reward is the most high God. I am your reward. I am your treasure. You, you, you treasure me, and I'm going to give you something so much greater, myself. For the people of God, the, the great treasure we have, it's not stuff from God. It is God himself. In God alone... We have what one writer said is the perfection of a happy life. In God alone, we have the highest and complete perfection of all good things. Do you really believe that? Or do you kind of think, well, the stuff in the, of, of Sodom, the, the goods of this world, let's go over there and we'll, we'll, we'll try to find our happiness and the pleasures of sin and God. Or do you see God as your supreme treasure? Now, Abram's question comes up in verse 2. He's like, hey, that's all good and well. It's not that Abram is doubting that God is for him. But verses 2 and 3, he asks his question. He said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? I'm a steward of my house as this Eliezer of Damascus. Abram's got a problem. He has no kids. He's saying, this is great. Okay, God, you're blessing me with all this stuff. But what good is it to have all the flocks and herds and wealth and, and, and silver and gold if I don't have anyone to pass it off to? If I don't have this child? You, you've promised, God, that I would be the father of many nations, but I don't have a single child. I'm childless. This problem has been brought up over and over again in the story that Abram and Sarai, they, they, they don't have any kids. She is barren. And this will become sort of the big conflict in the story of, of Abraham, in the life of Abraham. How is God going to fulfill the promise that through his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed if he doesn't have any kids? And how is that going to happen as Abraham gets older and older? 
Initially, he'd brought Lot with him. And maybe there's, there's a sense in which maybe he's thinking, I'm going to adopt Lot. He's my nephew. His dad has died. He'll be the, 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 be the guy. Then Lot leaves, goes over to Sodom. So now Abram's thinking, well, maybe it's Eliezer, this, this, this servant that I have, this guy from Damascus. Maybe he'll be the one who will receive the inheritance. In the ancient world, it was a, a, a practice that was done from time to time where if a couple did not have a natural child of their own, one of their servants could sort of be adopted into that role and could receive the inheritance, would make sure that they were buried, would make sure that they were taken care of in their old age, and would carry on sort of the family name. So he's thinking of that practice, that Eliezer, faithful steward, faithful servant, we find out about him, probably the same guy in chapter 24, goes to get the wife for Rebecca. He's thinking, this guy, maybe he's going to be the heir. And verse 4, God says, no, this is not going to be the one. Now, notice in verse 2, Abram said, Lord God. Notice God is all caps. This is to say Adonai, which is Master Yahweh, which is normally translated L-O-R-D, all caps. This is, a, this is a term of submission. This is Abram. Not, he's not coming to God in doubt, being like, hey, listen, buddy, i got a question for you. But this is Abram coming with a very much a, your will be done. You are the sovereign Lord. You are the one who opens and closes the womb. You are the giver of life. Your plan, your purposes are always right. He's going to use that title again in verse 8, and he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? These are the only two places in Genesis that these, t- these two terms are put together. This reveals that Abram's question here isn't coming from a heart of doubt, but he, he really does not understand, God, how are you going to do this? I, I believe your promises, but how are you going to carry this out? I think there's a model there for us in our praying. We don't come, to pray, come in prayer to God to try to convince him to do stuff that... that He doesn't want to do. We don't come to God with doubts, and we don't think you can do it. We come to God humbly, saying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At first glance, it seems like Abram is sort of questioning God, like, God, here's a suggestion, Eliezer, maybe he's going to be the guy. But later on, Abraham is going to be called the friend of God. In fact, this is the first time in the Abraham cycle that Abraham dialogues with Yahweh. He has a conversation with God. Later on, we're going to see him pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham is going to be known later on as the friend of God. This is, this, is, this is the expression of a deep, profound relationship that is growing between God and Abraham. He's not mincing words. He's being open. He's being direct. You, know, you see, a man is most open with his most trusted friend. There are some people that you can tell anything to. You think about, I've got friends like that, or family members, or a cousin. There's somebody that I just have that kind of relationship with. Abram had that kind of relationship with God. Blessed is the man who has that kind of unreserved, open communion with God, where you pour your heart out to him. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are brutally honest. Yes, they're respectful, they're worshipful, they're in awe of God. But the psalmist isn't coming along just saying, oh, thou art with this high and lofty language. Yes, there's poetry and beauty in there, but it is the honest expression of what is going on in the psalmist's life. The honest expression of the, the questions that Abram is wrestling with. What, what a model here for, for, for an effective prayer life. So he asks this question in verse 2, and then verse 3 basically reiterates it. Behold to me, thou hast given no seed. Now notice he is putting the onus of this on God. He's saying, God, you have not given me the seed. You're the one who's promised it, and I'm trusting you to carry out your promise. He's not, it's not blaming God, being like, well, look, you can't do it. But it is saying, God, I'm trusting you. Would you please carry out what you have promised? One born in my house is mine heir. 
This, this word heir gets repeated in, in the text. Again, in verse 4, it shows up again. So God comes back with his answer. Verse 4, God tells Abram, it's, no, it's not going to be a servant that you adopt. The heir that you're going to have is going to be your child. Now, something is not said. He doesn't say specifically it's going to be your and you and Sarai's child. So chapter 16, they're going to sort of try plan B, which is Abraham and Hagar. And God's going to be like, no, no, that's not the plan either. But God is revealing more and more to Abram, saying, no, it's going to be your child. It's not going to be Lot. It's not going to be Eliezer. It's not going to be someone that you adopt. It's going to be your son, even though, that you're, even though you're old, even though you don't have a child, even though you're barren. This one will not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. It's going to be a physical descendant. Amazing promise here. Well, Abraham sort of just trusted God come Genesis 16. Well, before we get too hard on Abram for what he does in Genesis 16, God does not give him a time frame. He's not saying next year. In fact, it's going to be decades. It's going to be 25 years from this point until Isaac is born. It's going to be six more chapters of Abram waiting and trusting God. That's amazing. It'll be a while before this will be fully realized. But God doesn't stop there of just saying, I'm going to give you a physical son. Well, that's a great promise. That's an amazing thing, almost unbelievable. But verse 5, he takes it up a notch. Verse 5, and he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven. So it seems like it's night, right? He can see the stars. Abram was probably sleeping, having this dream. God wakes him up. It's like, come outside of the tent. Come out publicly. Look now toward heaven and, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. By the way, the word tell and that word number... Those are the same Hebrew words. Go count the stars, Abram. Come outside. Look towards the heavens. God invites Abram to leave the tent and gaze at the brilliant night sky. There are, there are few sights that are more awe-inspiring as seeing the stars, right, when, when it's pitch black. Uh, and we have the problem here. We've got light pollution, and there's the city of Mobile and all these things. None of that's going on in 2000 B.C., no light pollution to speak of. It's the desert, so it's crystal clear at night. You, the, the stars would have been absolutely brilliant. I remember camping one time with my brother. We came up with this harebrained scheme to go camping in northern Arizona, uh, uh, Humphreys Peak. It's a 12,600-foot mountain, northern Arizona. We're like, let's do this in December. This will be awesome, like high-altitude December camping. And so we go up to the top of this mountain, we're like right at the timber line. I've got altitude sickness. It's miserable. It's cold. Like it's just, everything about this is, is horrible. And we, we brought a tent along with us thinking, yeah, we'll put a tent like on the mountain. Well, it's a mountain, so it's like this. The whole tent thing didn't work. So we ended up sleeping under the stars at, all, at 11 and a half thousand feet in winter in Arizona. Winter in Arizona is very dry. I have never seen stars that brilliant before. Absolutely incredible out there in the wilderness Just at that altitude, there's less atmosphere to filter the light. Absolutely incredible brilliance and beauty. You never quite feel, you're never going to feel so small as when you are standing under the stars thinking, those are light years away. Any one of those stars is millions of times the size of the earth. And here I am, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? The word here, look, look now toward heaven. That word suggests a, a studied gaze. This is not a quick, like, oh, yeah, there's the stars. But, like, no, Abram, take a good look at this. Stare at the stars for a while. Give, give it a try of counting the stars. An impossible task. 
Uh, even now with all of our telescopes counting the stars, there's more stars being discovered yeah, all the time. You get the, the Hubble Space Telescope out there that's looking further out into the expanse of, univer- of the universe, and the universe is expanding, and new stars being discovered, and nebula, and all of these incredible things. Counting the stars is a task that, task that only God can perform. Now, God had already told Abram that he was going to have innumerable descendants. Back in chapter 13, verse 16, God said, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. Here he says, I'm going to make your seed like the stars of heaven. Now, we don't want to overinterpret that. Some people are like, well, there'll be an earthly seed and a heavenly seed. No, that's, that's just a metaphor to say your descendants are going to be innumerable. There's going to be so many of these descendants. Later on, he's going to say they'll be like the sand on the seashore. Now, we're not supposed to take that and be like, well, we've calculated there are so many stars in the heaven and so many sand grains on the seashores of the universe. This is how many people will become Christian. That's not the point. The point is to say God is going to bless Abram in incredible ways. And as I've noted in past weeks, you've got to go to Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10 to see this fulfilled. This was not fulfilled at any point in Israel's history. This is fulfilled throughout all of history as God calls out a people for his name. And one day in heaven, there is going to be a multitude which no man can number from every nation. In thy seed, all families of the earth will be blessed. Of people who put their trust in the Messiah, in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Romans 4, which uh, Nate read earlier, or uh, Raymer read earlier in the service, tells us that everyone who believes in Jesus follows in the footsteps of Abraham. Right? We become sort of adopted into the line of Abraham. We become the recipients of these promises. So audacious promises. Abram, who has no kids, his wife is barren. God's like, you're going to have a son. It's not going to be Eliezer. And by the way, be like the stars of heaven. So how does Abraham respond? I think many of us would be like, yeah, right. That nice, nice one, God, like way to kind of sort of try to get my hopes up here a little bit. No, Abraham's response in verse 6, and he believed in the Lord. This is one of the most consequential verses in the entire Old Testament. And here's why. It shows us that Abraham, who is sort of the, uh, the typical believer, was justified by faith. Right? It was, it didn't, Abraham doesn't do anything here. It's not that Abraham went off and offered a sacrifice and built a shrine to God and God declared him righteous. No, Abraham simply believes God. He simply says, God, I trust and rely upon and depend upon your promises. And, and it says it was counted to him for righteousness. God counted that, that faith. God says, on the basis of your faith, I'm going to declare you to be righteous in my sight. That's incredible. This, this act of faith... Uh, he believed in the Lord. By the way, that word believed comes from the word we get amen. Uh, amen means it is so. It is a declaration of certitude. It is a declaration of firmness. It's not I hope so or may this be, but it is so. It's in a, in a stem in the, in the Hebrew verb that turns it into a declaration to regard something as dependable. So say, okay, something is dependable. I'm regarding God as dependable and trustworthy. That is what faith is. It very well may have been a verbal confession of faith where Abraham hears the promise of God and he says, amen, amen, it is, it is true. I believe it. I trust in it. The tense of it suggests this was not just a one-time act. It's not like Abraham never believed God until Genesis 15 verse 6. I think this is a summary statement 
of the manner of Abraham's life as we have followed it thus far. So God says to him back in Genesis 12, leave Ur of the Chaldees. Well, Abraham believes God and takes that step of faith. Abraham here hears this promise of God and he believes God. In fact, the reason I believe we can say this is because of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a country which he should afterward receive as an inheritance, obeyed. And he went forth not knowing whither he went. Faith is what marked every step of Abram's life from the time God called him from Ur the Chaldees. So I don't think Genesis 15.6 is saying up to this point Abraham was lost and now he's converted. Rather, this is a summary statement to say, by the way, Abraham had believed in God and Abraham continued to believe in God. And on the basis of this life of faith, God declared him righteous. Abram believed in the Lord. This was a way of life, which reminds us, by the way, saving faith is not just sort of a one-time, like, you know, I was sitting in Sunday school, and, like, the teacher told me about Jesus, and so I believed in Jesus for a split second, then went back to not believing in Jesus. Yeah, it has a beginning. Saving faith has a beginning. None of us are born into believing in Jesus. But it has a beginning, and it continues, and it perseveres, and it lasts, because faith is the work of God, and it will not fail. Saving faith continues. Saving faith grows. And the life of Abraham shows us that, that, yeah, he, he has his ups and downs, but by the time we get to Genesis 22, he's willing to offer Isaac upon an altar, believing that God will raise him from the dead. Like this faith continues to grow. So Abraham believed in God was not way back in 2000 BC when I was in Ur of the Chaldees. I had a moment of faith in Jesus, and that was what saved me. And I, and I never, no, this was something that began, and it continued. And by faith, Abram went out by faith Abraham believed by faith Abram believed took the land by faith Abram offered Isaac and you can read about that in Hebrews 11 but look back to the text and Abram believed in the Lord you see faith is only as good as its object the object of his faith was not his own actions it wasn't Abram believed in his faith but it was Abram believed in Yahweh. That he's the object of faith. Now, Hebrew can do this a couple of different ways. One of them is to say the faith was sort of toward, toward something, directed toward something. Or it can say the faith is in something. And it's the second one. This faith is not just generically, I have faith toward God. But I have faith in God. I am relying upon him. I am resting in him. It's not even on a specific promise. It doesn't just say he believed in God's promise. But he believed in God himself, God himself, his character, his faithfulness, his grace, is that which Abram relied upon. So Abram's not done anything here. He's simply relying on God. And he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, that is Abram, for righteousness. The New Testament writers, especially Paul, pick up on this and say it is on the basis of faith that God declares sinners to be righteous. You see, Abram was not a righteous man. In and of himself, he was a sinner. He was a son of Adam, just like you and me. It wasn't that Abram had the special, like, he was just righteous and godly all the time. No, no, no. He was a fallen sinner who needed to be redeemed. He was unrighteous. And God looks at Abram and doesn't say, ah, based on that, you've now achieved. But God says, I declare you to be righteous. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ went to his account. The result of faith is stunning. Abram offers no sacrifice. He performs no religious deeds. He is not baptized. He's not even circumcised at this point. The temple is not built up. He utters no mantra. And God says, I declare you righteous purely on the basis of faith. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness can mean right behavior or it can mean right standing before God. 
And it's the second one, because it's not that Abram did anything that was behaviorally righteous. He simply believes, and God says, before me, you are declared righteous. The, the word we use is justification. God declaring sinners who deserve his wrath to be righteous, to be acquitted, to be positively and perfectly and eternally right before him. Go over with me to Romans 4 to get a divine commentary on this. So Romans 4, we read the the last half of the chapter earlier in our service, but notice what Paul does in the opening verses. Romans 4. I want you to see this. Romans 4. This is important because this goes right to the heart of biblical Christianity. Romans 4, verse 1. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? So he says, okay, Father Abraham, what did, what did he discover? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. He says, okay, if God declared Abraham righteous because of things that he did, Abraham could take credit, right? If God's like, hey, Abraham, go out and offer a sacrifice and you'll be righteous. Well, then he can say, well, look, I went out and did this. But what saith the scripture, verse 3? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. There's a quote of the verse that we just read. So Abraham believes, that's all he does, and it is imputed, it is counted, it is reckoned as a counting term. It's put to his spiritual bank account for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if Abraham went out and did something, God would owe him. God's not going to be any man's debtor. But to him that worketh not... But believeth on him that justifieth, notice these next two words, the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Do you catch this? The people who God forgives, the people who God acquits, it's not the godly. It's not the people who are righteous in themselves, but the people who come and say, here I am, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm a rebel, I'm a lawbreaker. Which is all of us. Those who come acknowledging that in faith, God justifies the ungodly, not the godly. And on that is destroyed the, 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 the Roman Catholic doctrine of, of justification by works, that you achieve a certain level and then God declares you righteous, or God infuses you with sort of righteous behavior and grace that you live a certain way, and then he says, aha, now you're righteous. No, he declares us righteous on the basis of faith. Faith and faith alone. Faith and not works, not a mixture of the two, but faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ Beloved, do you see how awesome this is? Really, yeah, I've heard about justification. We're in church. No, you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus, you stand before God as perfectly righteous. Not because of anything you did, but because Jesus died on your behalf. Because of the perfect obedience of Jesus being put to your account. And there's nothing you need to add to it. So that means that my standing before God is not dependent on me having a good day or a bad day. It's not dependent on me following the rules or achieving a certain standard or dressing a certain way or, or, or undergoing certain religious rites. It's based on Jesus alone and is never going to change. Like how good is that? How glorious is that? How marvelous is that? So my question to you is, are you trusting God alone to save you or are you trusting Jesus alone to save you? Or are you relying on yourself in just a little way, like my baptism, my good works, I did this, I did that, or is it Jesus alone? But there's a second promise, back to Genesis 15. So that's the first promise. The second promise is not just the promise of a son, but it's also the promise of the land. So verse 7, we come to the second cycle. We're going to get God's word. We're going to get a question. We're going to get an answer. We're going to get an action. 
And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees. So as we go along, we find out this is the next day. So Abram perhaps goes back to bed, and God's shown him this vision of the stars, and your seed will be this way. I'm faithful. Abram's declared righteous. We get this amazing statement. Verse 7 comes on. I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. So God moves on from talking about the, from the heir to the inheritance, the inheritance here being the land of Canaan. And he said, Lord God, where shall I know that I shall inherit it? He says, on what basis am I going to come to, to, to realize and to know and to have certainty and to have an assurance that this will be the case? And God's going to call him to, to bring these animals and to, to enact a covenant. So we see the preparations here for the covenant. What's going to happen by the end of the chapter is God will formally ratify what we call the Abrahamic covenant. He'd given the promises back in Genesis 12. Here in Genesis 15, he'll formally go through the process of killing animals and passing through the pieces to establish a covenant relationship, this solemn agreement between God and Abram in which God agrees to take up all of the obligations. And then in Genesis 17, you'll give him the sign of the covenant. So this is a process that goes out over a number of chapters of God guaranteeing to Abraham all these things. But God's word comes to him, I am the Lord who brought you out. By the way, this is identical language to another covenant. Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God which brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. When God establishes the Mosaic covenant, he begins it with who he is. I am the Lord... And what he's done, I've brought you up. It is grounded. Notice this covenant, this covenant God's establishing. It begins with God. It doesn't begin with Abraham. It doesn't begin with what Abraham's doing. It's not Abraham coming along being like, hey, God, I think we ought to establish a covenant here. I'm going to come and let's meet each other halfway. No, it begins with God. I am the Lord. Like the Mosaic covenant, and by the way, like the new covenant under which we live This relationship is based on God's sovereign grace. It's initiated by a sovereign God, and it is grounded in his eternal nature. It's not grounded in Abraham. You need to keep doing these things. It is grounded in I am the Lord. Hey, your salvation, my salvation, our standing before God is not grounded in you and me in any way. It is grounded in the eternal, unchanging nature of God. Praise him for that. It's it's not grounded in anything that I do, but everything that he does, which means all glory goes to him. Uh, There's no room there for pride. There's no room there for self-righteousness. Yet how often are we as Christians known by people around us as being a bunch of arrogant, self-righteous, religious people? Seriously, think about this. Think about the reputation we have. Sometimes it's being, well, we're just self-righteous, and we go around looking down on everyone, and we're better than them and better than them and better than them. If we understand God's grace, that the covenant we have, the standing we have, is not based on me, but it's based on what God has done, there's no room for me to boast. There's no room for me to feel like I somehow deserved it more than someone else. Think about how that could change the way that you relate to your spouse. If instead of I'm better than them and I always do everything right and they always do everything wrong, how about I recognize I'm a sinner who deserves hell and God in his grace has established a relationship with me that's grounded in his eternal nature. And he's done the same for my spouse. We're heirs together of the grace of life. Just that humility. Think about how that would, how that would re- just influence the way you respond to your kids when they, when they sin. Or the way that you react to your, your coworkers. When you've got unsaved coworkers who live like they're unsaved, 
Rather than being outraged and morally uh, riding on your high horse or needing a virtue signal, just be like, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm saved by grace. I can respond humbly. I can respond kindly because I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by the finished work of Jesus. So Abram asks a question, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Like, God, what token will you give me? What evidence will you give me? Again, not an expression of doubt, but a desire for confirmation. So God's answer comes along, verses 9, 10, and 11. God tells him, go get these animals. There's five different animals that are mentioned. All five of these will later on, when God gives Moses the law, will be part of the sacrificial system. Now, I was puzzling over this. Why a heifer of three years old and a goat of three years old, a ram of three years old? None of the later sacrifices use that age. It's always one year old. I think to say these are the most valuable Right? These are valuable animals that are going to be simply sliced into and used as part of a covenant-making ceremony. God's calling Abraham to do something that is costly. He's saying, Abraham, go get sort of the most valuable animals in your herd, and I want you to slaughter them. And Abraham, guess what he does is he does it. God says in verse 9, take, and verse 10, and he took. So God commands Abraham obeys. You say, well, I thought we said it's all by faith, and now here's Abraham obeying. You know how we know that faith is real? Real faith obeys. And by the way, Genesis 15, 6 also gets quoted in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, James says, hey, Abraham, yeah, he believed God, it was counted him for righteousness, but that was proven by Abraham's life of obedience. So while we are saved by faith alone without works, faith that saves is never alone. The faith that saves will result in obedience. You say, I believe in Jesus. Is it seen in your life? I believe in Jesus. Does it result in an obedience to the commands of Jesus? There's going to be evidence, and the evidence comes out in Abraham obeying. So he, he takes these animals, and then verse 10, he divided them in the middle. He literally slices them in two, except for the birds. They're a little too small to break, and he lays them side by side. Verse 11, when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, so the, you know, the carrion-eating birds are, are swarming, and they're going to come down and pick them apart, he chases them away. What in the world is going on here? This is Abraham formally setting the table to enter into a covenant with God. There's enough evidence from extra-biblical sources to say that this was a common practice, especially in Mesopotamia, where Abraham was from. If you want to enter into a covenant, you're going to enter into a treaty, an obligation with someone else. What would often be done is they would take a donkey in the... Uh, some of the texts, literally the word to go into a covenant is to kill a donkey. They're going to take a donkey, they would cut it in two, put it on either side, and then the two parties who are entering into a covenant with each other would pass between the two parts. Here's what they're saying. So let it be done to me if I fail to keep my obligations. So say you go into a treaty between a couple of kingdoms, and you, these two kings enter into a treaty, and, you know, we're going to guard your border, and you're going to honor our border, and we're going to go to war and defend each other. What they were saying by cutting these animals in two is... Let me be cut in two. Let me be killed in this gruesome, horrifying way if I fail to keep my obligations. It was a graphic reminder of the the penalties that would come upon you if you didn't keep your word. Um, We get a reference to this, by the way, in, in Jeremiah 34, 18 to 19. Cutting the animals, going between the two parts, entering into the solemn agreement. That's what a covenant is. A solemn agreement, a solemn promise that has serious ramifications if one of the parties does not keep their side of the bargain. So verse 12 now, we come to God actually entering into this covenant, Abraham falling asleep. When the sun was going down, now notice back in in, in verse 17, 
when the sun went down. So we get this sort of this, this scene from the previous night to the day Abraham spends all day slicing up animals. I mean, that would have been hard work. He's got to go catch the animals. He's got to cut them in two. I've never tried cutting a cow in half, but I would imagine it's a lot of work and incredibly disgusting. Like, this is gruesome, bloody, messy work. As the sun begins to go down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And then God is going to speak. And then verse 17, look at verse 17. It came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace, a burning lamp passed between those pieces. Here's what's incredible is Abraham is going to have nothing to do with this covenant. It's going to be God and God alone. He's going to be asleep through the whole deal. The language, by the way, of deep sleep takes us back to Genesis 2 when God puts Adam to sleep, he takes a rib out of his flesh, and he creates Eve and establishes another covenant, the covenant of marriage. In both cases, it's as if God is saying, look, I'm the one who is going to enact this. I'm the one who is going to cause this to happen. A deep sleep falls upon Abram. He's got nothing to do with this covenant. God alone is going to make this covenant with him. We get the language here in verse 12, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. God again is going to show up. The, 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 the torch, the smoke, the fire, picturing God's presence and there is this terror that grips Abram's heart as he has an encounter with God Almighty. I said earlier, fear not. Here it is again, this idea of terror. It foreshadows the arrival of the divine presence. It's this fear of the numinous, this dread of the holy, this terror of the divine. We don't just go waltzing into the presence of God being like, hey, what's up, buddy? No, God is holy. God is perfect. God is exalted. God is transcended. And we are creatures. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If God is not propitious towards you, if God is not gracious towards us through Christ, we cannot stand in his presence. So this darkness falls upon him. And so now we get these promises that God is going to make with Abram. Here's the heart of the covenant. Often a covenant would have promises and then there would be curses if you did not keep keep your side of the bargain. Oftentimes it would be two-sided. We get that, by the way, in Deuteronomy. God enters a covenant with Israel and says, here's the blessings if you obey. Here's the curses if you disobey. But notice there are no curses upon Abram. This is God making promises to him. Verse 13. And he said unto Abram, know of a surety. So back in verse 8, Abraham had asked, how will I know? God's like, here's how you know. Your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. God says, Abraham, here's the plan that I have for your people. Here's the promises I'm making. Verse 14, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. The first promise God makes to Abraham here is the promise of deliverance. He's saying, your your children, they're going to go into the land of Egypt. They'll be there for 400 years. Now, he doesn't name Egypt, but we know reading Exodus. 430 years later, the 400 years is just a a round number. So 430 years later, you're going to get a guy named Moses, and you're going to get the plagues and God delivering his people out of Egypt. So a promise of redemption, a promise of deliverance. The people were going to be there for four centuries, for four lifetimes, under oppression, under slavery, under the heel of the Egyptians. And then verse 14, I'm going to judge that nation, and then I'm going to deliver them with great substance. A promise of Deliverance, And, of course, the exodus itself points us to Jesus, the one who delivers us from the slavery and from the oppression of sin. Jesus is the great liberator of his people from the slavery of sin. He keeps that promise. 
So God's entering into this covenant with Abraham. Yes, about the land. And how do I know? Here's how you know. I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. There's a promise of redemption, of deliverance. And then verse 15, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. This is God saying, Abraham, I'm going to continue protecting you. You're going to live a full and joyful life. You're not going to die a violent end, but you're going to live a full life. He's going to see Isaac, and he's going to see his descendants, a promise of life. Genesis 25 verse 8 tells us that Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life and was gathered to his people. Reflection of God's favor. So there's a promise of deliverance, a promise of life. Verse 16, this one's interesting. But in the fourth generation, and we, don't, we should not be too literal with the generation, four lifetimes, people lived about 100 years back then. After four centuries, they, your descendants, will come hither again. They're going to come out of Egypt, and they're going to come to the land of Canaan. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. That's interesting. The Amorites are a wicked people, and God says their iniquity has not yet reached the level where I'm going to judge them. This is a promise of divine patience. To the wicked Amorites who have nothing to do with the promises of God, who have nothing to do with the people of God, God says, I'm going to be patient with them for 400 years. I'm going to give them space. I'm going to give them opportunity to repent, and they're going to reject that. God is granting the wicked Amorites time, giving them space. Why? Because God is patient and long-suffering. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, God's been patient with me. I've lived my whole life just kind of ignoring his law and just meeting the basic status quo of showing up to church from time to time but not actually trusting in Jesus. And lightning hasn't struck me from heaven to to knock me down. Despisest thou the riches of his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? The, the, The delay of God's judgment is not to be mistaken with the cancellation of his judgment. So 400 years later, Joshua, God would tell Joshua, go into the land and you are to annihilate the Amorites, the Canaanites, the people of the land. Now a lot of people are like, oh, how horrible, it's genocide. No, that was an act of divine judgment. Israel would later become the instrument of justice. The the invasion of Canaan was not a war of aggression, but a war of divine justice. The Amorites were one of the most wicked societies that this planet has ever known. If you want to get a sense of how bad they were, read Leviticus 18. God gives Israel some some directions saying, do not live like the Amorites and do the things that they did. Here's the things that they did. They offered their children as burnt sacrifices to their gods. That's pretty wicked. That deserves death. They were engaged in rampant incest and bestiality and homosexuality, just the most wicked perversions that we can fathom. Sins that even today people in our society would be like, yeah, a number of those cross the line. We, we think some of those are pretty bad. God tells Israel, don't live like them because it's because of their sin that the land is vomiting them out. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. We get a picture of the patience of God. So we get these promises God makes here in verses 13 to 16. Think about these promises. A promise of, of deliverance, a promise of life, a promise of patience. And here's the thing that's so amazing. These are the very same promises that we get in Christ. We get this promise of deliverance from not, no, not slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. We get, we get the promise of life, not just here and now, but the promise of eternal life. The promise of life as God has it in the new, new heaven and the new earth. And the promise of God's patience towards us as God gives us opportunity to repent. Now, coming to verse 17, we get the formal ratification of this this incredible covenant. 
And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. This looks forward a little bit to the Exodus. God's Shekinah glory is like a pillar of cloud, a pillar of smoke, and a pillar of fire. This is to say this is God's presence. Now you notice who's not passing between the parts. Normally what would happen is, is the two parties together would go between the two parts to say we're making a covenant together. This is a bilateral agreement. Like when these treaties are signed and the, you know, Gorbachev and Reagan shake hands together in front of all the flags together. We're equal partners in this deal. No, this, there's, there's no equal partners. It is God by himself. Here's what God is saying. Abraham, I'm taking all of the obligations of this covenant on myself. So let it be done to me if the obligations are not met. There is no obligation put on Abraham. There's no obligation put on Abraham or his children to keep up their end of the bargain. God's saying it's all on me. And in the same way, Jesus goes to the cross, bearing your sin and my sin, taking the the wrath that we deserve, taking the penalty that we deserve, taking the curse that we deserve, and bearing it all in himself. And he's saying, all of the obligations are put on me. Simply receive it by faith. There's nothing for us to do. It's not by the labor of our hands. It's not by the works that we we perform. As Paul will point out in, in Genesis 4, God did this before Abraham was even circumcised, so it's not because of any religious rite that is done. It's not because of baptism, but because of the promise of God. It's done by God alone. The Shekinah glory alone. The unapproachable holiness and glory of God alone. Now the chapter ends with God reiterating the promise of the land the same day the Lord made a covenant, literally cut a covenant. That's, that's the language. They cut a covenant. You cut the parts of the animal. You enter into covenant. God cuts this covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt, that's not the Nile, but that would be the, the, the little river that's on the border between Palestine and Egypt. Unto the river Euphrates. And then he lists out these nations that God is going to, to guarantee that he will conquer. God's promising the land to Abraham. Now, this covenant is foundational for the rest of the Old Testament. When God brings Israel out of Egypt, he's simply saying, I'm going to give to you the promises I made to Abraham. And when Jesus comes into this world, he's simply fulfilling the promises God made to Abraham of there's going to be this one in whom all families of the earth will be blessed. You know what the future is of the land promise? Yes, there's going to be a millennial kingdom one day when when Israel will be first among the nations. But that's not the end of it. God one day will make a new heaven and a new earth, right? That's the fulfillment of the land promise. It's so much bigger than just a piece of real estate in the Middle East. I think that's really a narrow view of this. Yes, that that piece of real estate in the Middle East, God has promised to Israel, and one day they will inherit all of the land and the the millennial kingdom under, under Christ's reign. But look beyond that. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be no more sin, no more death, no more suffering, no more guilt. That's the fulfillment of all of this. And it's based on God's grace. A promise that God unilaterally enacts through the shed blood of Jesus. So we shouldn't just be thinking, well, what does this mean for Abraham and for the Israelites? Because Galatians 3.29 says, if you belong to Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. We are the recipients of this covenant that God made to Abraham. Not to the exclusion of Israel. Israel will one day inherit this when they look upon him whom they have pierced, but included with them. And guess what? God obligates himself to keep the covenant. 
So the seed of Abraham, he promises him a son. Yeah, that's Isaac. And yes, that's the nation of Israel. And ultimately, it is the true Israel, Jesus Christ. He promises him the land that, yes, it's this piece of real estate in the Middle East that Solomon and David would conquer and that God will one day ensure to Israel in the millennial kingdom, but it's the new heaven and the new earth that we get to experience. So let me give you two points of application as we conclude. What do God's promises mean for you and me? Obviously, we ought to trust them and believe them because God does not lie. But God's promises should motivate perseverance. Abraham went through life without experiencing the fullness of these promises. He died seeing them afar off. In the same way, we don't get all of it here and now. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. That's the only way that we will persevere because, hey, sin, that's a tough battle against sin. We face suffering in this world, but we keep taking one step in front of another knowing that God will be faithful to those promises. Hebrews 6, speaking about this, tells us this, For when men verily swear by the, they verily swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is to the end, the end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his covenant confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Hebrews is written to a bunch of Christians who are like, The going is getting tough. We kind of want to throw in the towel, and God's like, no, look back at Abraham. God has sworn a covenant, a promise to you that will not fail. It motivates perseverance and suffering and difficulty and temptation. But God's promises not only motivate perseverance, they motivate praise. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 says, In Jesus, all of God's promises are to us, yes and amen. They're sure and they're personal, so that God would be glorified by us. We look at the promises of God and we look at how extravagant they are and how faithful they are and it motivates our praise and our delight. So do you praise God for his faithfulness? I know many of these things I've said today, you've, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before, the Abrahamic covenant, the faithfulness of God, this is all good and well. But what if we stepped back to consider and to behold our God? A God who swore these incredible promises to Abraham, a God who is faithful to you and me, a God who has guaranteed himself to us, a God who says to you and me, do not fear, I am your shield, and I am your exceeding great reward. Father, would you strengthen our faith, our confidence in your covenant, our faith.